in the Buddhist tradition, um, it's there's something called uh, there's a practice of dedication or a spirit of dedication. Sometimes that sense of dedicating one's practice to the benefit of all beings or dedicating one's practice to someone or something particular. One may have the idea with that of somehow the goodness of one's heart or one's practice or one's intention actually kind of spreading out and touching the other, of being bene- of benefit to the other. Or one may just have the sense in invoking the dedication of just extending one's heart in that direction. So I'd like to begin the teaching this evening with a dedication. It's a historic day today. It's the first day of the largest ever uh, coordinated act of civil disobedience in the history of the world. This is moving, you know, impressive. I've been following it today. And we have a lot of friends who are involved in various ways in London and Paris and New York and San Francisco particularly. So there's hundreds of thousands of people at least on bridges and in the road and locked on to vehicles and other obstructions and things who are putting their body and their bodhi, bodhi in the Buddhist tradition means awakeness, giving their themselves, putting their body and their bodhi literally on the line and in the road out of a sense of urgency, sense that desperate times call for desperate measures, a sense that 40 years at least of uh, very clear recognition about the state of ecological degradation hasn't done anything to change direction. A kind of desolation or desperation born of seeing that all the countries that signed up to the Paris Accords and pledged to lower their emissions have done exactly the opposite and continued all of us for our emissions to rise. The fact that species loss and forest loss and biodiversity loss and the quality of air loss and the quality of water loss, etc. is kind of that we're degrading at a rapid and um, dangerous rate our capacity to live ourselves as a species on the earth, our capacity of the earth to support all these other species. And, you know, maybe you've felt the understandable uh, grief or helplessness, desolation, fear, maybe. Certainly, if you look beyond the kind of mainstream rhetoric of recycling and being more energy efficient uh, to the kind of real implications of our direction of travel with the way we're consuming resources, etc. 
There's a great cause for alarm. And so, in this historic moment, where in at least 56 countries today, people are sounding the alarm in that way. And they're sounding the alarm on our behalf. And maybe we're sitting here on their behalf as well. Maybe you have friends on roads and bridges. Maybe you have friends who've been arrested today or might get arrested tomorrow. Several people connected with Gaia House. Several of the teachers at Gaia House uh, are there and have been arrested previously. Yanai has become a serial arrestee (laughs) in the last weeks and months. There's a great backing up of court cases against him now. So... I'd like to dedicate our practice and the goodness of our practice, our hearts and the transformation of our hearts, these teachings and the potency of these teachings to to all those who care. Dedicate to our care that it might spread out that it might make a difference. And to dedicate it to the, the multitude of actions of heart and body and care, that we might make a difference, that we might make a profound difference internally in heart and mind and body, and that we make a, might make a profound difference in how we meet each other and that we might make a profound, necessary difference in how we live together on the earth. And in that sense, our sitting here and our friends sitting on roads and bridges are really expressing the same intention to make a profound difference. And sometimes it might be really appropriate for us to engage that intention internally, contemplatively, like we're doing here. And in other moments, it might be very appropriate and important to engage that intention outwardly in the ways we act and speak and show up in life. And really, a contemplative practice isn't about inner transformation versus outer transformation. Mm. It's about that engaging that intention inwardly and outwardly, engaging that intention to uh, show up wisely and kindly, skillfully and lovingly, lightly and freely, in all the ways that we can. So it's in that spirit that I offer that dedication. It's in that spirit that you might like to share in your own offering of that dedication. I uh, think I mentioned a couple of days ago that I was at a conference in Paris last week and I was speaking at that conference along with some of the foremost 
well, probably the foremost uh, researchers in the world on um, on meditation. And these people have given you know in the last twenty years or more, some of them nearly forty years now, to exploring in kind of laboratory conditions the effect of meditation on a whole variety of different markers. Um, Perla Kaliman, Spanish uh, researcher, and Elizabeth Blackmore won the Nobel Prize for Medicine for her research on telomeres, and her research partner Alyssa Eppel have done these long 20-year studies into the effects of meditation on the nervous system, etc. And Richie Davidson has worked very closely with the Dalai Lama for the last more than 30 years now at His Holiness Dalai Lama's request to bring the kind of the rigor and the brilliance of scientific uh, measurement and and, uh, investigation to look into uh, the effects of kind of everyday meditation and also to look into the effects of what Ritchie calls Olympic level meditation. <laughs> and they've done a lot of fantastic studies on people, you know, beginning meditators and uh, you know, habitual meditators and professional meditators and Olympic meditators. You know, some of the people who've spent decades you know, in caves and. What? That's, that's where the Olympic level meditation happens. And uh, it's very interesting speaking to these friends about their work and some of the opportunities they've had. So uh, they've also been looking at uh, what happens with advanced meditations after death, for example. One recent case where they were able to both video and measure and track uh, uh, a Tibetan uh, teacher in the south of India and after death for 17 days after death through what's often known as the Tukdam period or clear light period. And the sense is that death is quite a disturbance for most people. And so even though, as we've been exploring, awareness is always available. Awareness is the ground of all experience. And the awareness continues to be the ground of experience as the sensory life shuts down, as the emotional life shuts down, and as the kind of self-referencing shuts down. And we don't really, we can't say too much about what happens after that. If you want to really know what happens after death, you have to ask the dead, and they're not very forthcoming, mostly. But with some, uh, the more there's a kind of recognition of and grounding in and kind of unshakable <coughs> confidence in the ground of awareness, then the more there's the capacity to recognize and orientate to what's called the tukdam, the clear light of awareness after death. And that can be stabilized in such a way as, as these people were recently measuring. And 17 days of zero decomposition. So medically dead, no heartbeat, no brain activity measurable, at least on the surface of the brain, which is as far as the measuring can happen. 
and you had complete um, poise, radiance of skin, etc. So, sounds impressive. I said to Richie, but why? Why hang about mm -hmm. for 17 days? <laughs> and I uh, said, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's the, the idea and the tradition is that it's offered as a kind of, it's offered as a teaching right, to the person's students. It's offered as a kind of gift to inspire confidence in the teachings, to inspire a uh, kind of commitment to the practice to inspire a kind of that same unshakable reliance in the groundless ground of luminous awareness. So, oh, what was I planning to talk about? Because it wasn't any of that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, what they found in this research across um, uh, across all different kind of levels of engagement with meditation, where there, there seemed to be four areas of training, four skills, if you like, that that meditative practices, contemplative practices, transformative practices can train. That seem to be the four kind of key components to real transformation. The four key components to really engaging that intention for transformation. And I was just uh, having had conversations with these friends last week in Paris. I was just reminded of these four components today and I realized, oh, so first let me tell you what they are. Right? First is awareness. Right? The components of training the attention of kind of self-exploration, of uh, being able to extend attention into what's going on around us, and the capacity to actually focus the mind in various ways. So various components of, of the capacity to train awareness, to train a power of attention. <coughs> Another of those components is um, insight, right? actually going through layers of, le of recognition of our own patterning and recognition of the way, uh, the way mind is, the way world is, the way experience is, the way reality is. And so both those things I was realizing this afternoon, oh, we've given quite some attention to both of those things. Given a lot of attention to awareness and to the capacity to train our attention in various different ways. To come back from the way attention just follows its habits and to actually cultivate an attention that's embodied, that's uh, deep, that's open, that's curious, that's bright, that's exploratory, etc. And then last night I gave some attention to the realm of insight, the hallmarks of insight, the, the realms of experience into which uh, we, we have insight and how that makes a difference. And so I thought, oh, there's two evenings left. Let me give some attention then and then today and tomorrow to these other two components. So awareness and attention training, first component. 
insight. The second. And then the third component, which we'll look at tonight, is connection. And components of that being kindness, empathy, joy, etc. And then the fourth, comp- the fourth uh, aspect is what is it? Let me see. Uh, purpose, mm. meaningfulness, having a sense of being grounded in uh, a certain depth of meaning, of purpose, having a certain confidence in one's actions being aligned with one's values, etc. So, we'll give some attention to that tomorrow. And for today, just to look a little at uh, the importance of connection, the transformational potential of connection, and then specifically, connection as an art, Right, as something that we can train. Being on retreat is a very particular kind of situation. Right? It's hard to say whether it's a situation that fosters connection or not. There may be moments where one feels very unconnected from others because we're used to connecting you know, through maybe primarily through language, but also through all kinds of other cues we give each other. And you may have been giving each other a few of those cues. You may have been exchanging the odd smile or uh, look. Or not. Some people find it important and helpful actually to just really disengage from the everyday kind of connection and find that actually that helps foster a deeper sensitivity to connection. So it may be that one feels rather alone here, in some moments at least. And yet it also may be the case that there are moments where one feels very much connected to, very much supported by, very much in concert or communion or connection with each other. And that there's a kind of sense of really being in solidarity with each other's humanness. And that can be just in the sitting together. In the sense that, oh yeah, my neighbor's knees are also sore. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's the point of connection. We've all got sore knees. (laughs) Maybe just the sense of kind of the shared spirit, shared intention, shared willingness, shared orientation, shared values. Maybe, as some of you have expressed, like I mentioned earlier, in hearing from each other, here in the hall or in the small group, hearing the way, oh, one person's questions are also another person's questions. The way in which beneath the details and dramas of our personal situation, we're basically all going through things that are essentially human experiences, essentially human responses, essentially human uh, emotions. And that in that, there may be a deep sense of connection. And then there's these ways we can actually train the art of connection. 
And so kindness being one of those ways. And again, you know, there's in the in the situation of this relative solitude and silence, still plenty of ways that kindnesses might get expressed. Right? There may be the you know certainly as you're doing your work for period, there's a lot of ways to do the work period. You know, you can do the work period just absent-mindedly. Right? It's the way we do a lot of kind of uh, repetitive chores often. Or, as is the encouragement here, you can sort of imbue the task that you're doing with presence. Anyone could also just be being mindful of the task, but in a rather dry way. You know, sometimes like in that Burmese, some of you have practiced in the Burmese style. When you move, you do the noting technique. When you eat, you go lifting, lifting, shoving, shoving. <laughs> Chewing, chewing, swallowing, swallowing. <laughs> Repeat. Right. And then the walking, lifting, moving, placing, shifting. Lifting, moving, <laughs> etc. Very mindful, very attentive. But could be, and doesn't, I'm not suggesting that it's like that with that technique necessarily, but it could be that one's giving an attention where there's a sense of being present, being here, being mindful, but it's a dry attention. Or one uh, can train in the art of, one can consciously practice imbuing what one's doing with kindness. You know? when in a recognition that you're chopping the carrots to feed us all. That you're cleaning the bathrooms to support us all. That you're sweeping the corridors for the benefit of us all. That you're washing the dishes for us all. Of course, there can be a kind of theoretical kindness. Right? You can be telling yourself, I'm doing this for the benefit of everyone. Aren't I being kind? Right? Or you can actually imbue the action with a sense of kindness. There's a way in which, you know, the brush can, and I don't mean to over-egg it when I say this, but really, where you can be, you know, the brush can be caressing the bowl. Where you can feel the movement of the broom as an act of kindness, as an expression of your heart. And when you train kindness, you grow kindness. You grow that sense of sensitivity to, care for, and intimacy with those who you're being kind to. And that can go in all kinds of directions. Most think of that sense of kindness as being something that's extended outwards. And of course, it's equally important to extend that same kindness, gentleness, tenderness inwards. There's a popular, rather strange spiritual cliche that says, if you can't love yourself, you can't love anyone else. <laughs> Rubbish. A lot of us, actually, are very good at being kind 
and attentive and patient and loving and generous with other people. Right? And actually, it's the other way. It's the other way round. Very good at being attuned outwardly, and then somehow, when it comes to oneself, gets forgotten, pushed aside, dismissed, ignored, or actively, um, you know, uh, uh, done that with, uh, you know, pushed away, rejected. And we might think of kind of meditation type scene like this one as a place for inner kindness and then we go out to the world and that's a place for outer kindness and maybe there's some of that but actually any situation meditative situation in here or the work period situation or the wider context of our lives are an equal opportunity for any and every form of kindness Sometimes, you know, and there are specific practices, maybe you're familiar with them, meta practices, etc., where one directs kindness inwardly and then one directs kindness outwardly. Traditionally, there's a kind of multi-layered process to that, first inwardly and then outwardly to a loved one, somebody it's easy to feel kindness for, and then to a neutral person, somebody one might have some dealings with but without having any particular affinity with. And then you sort of build up to kindness towards a difficult person, somebody you have had or do have some conflict with. And sometimes people find those practices very helpful, powerful, healing, healing to the heart, healing of wounds or conflicts or resentments that might be there. And that's a way, right? That's a way of training Kindness, of growing kindness, of becoming more skilled in holding things kindly. And essentially, whether it's one may choose to direct kindness inwardly, or one may choose to direct kindness outwardly in various ways, but most essentially, if you want to really resolve the inwards and outwards and this person and that person, what you're really invited to be kind to is experience. To treat your experience kindly, forgivingly. Because then inner and outer doesn't really matter so much. What we call inner, my thoughts and wishes and concerns and fears, oh, here they are, they're, they're my, they're the, they arise as experience. And then the difficulty or the resentment or the concern with another, oh, right, they're here in experience. You can cultivate the art of holding experience kindly. Then you'll find that kindness, you grow the art of holding experience kindly. Whether it's the experience of oneself or somebody else, of here or there or this or that, all that is a little bit secondary. So it may be, as I say, very helpful to do that sort of multi-step process. It may be very necessary sometimes for some people to focus in a particular direction. Let me wish myself well. Let me hold my sense of myself with kindness. Or let me direct kindness in a particular way to a particular person or a particular group. 
but it might, can also be that regardless of the relationship, regardless of the situation, regardless of whether it's something uh, meditative or something more active in the world, that we kind of orientate in this rather fundamental way to holding experience tenderly, kindly, lovingly. And then if that's what you cultivate, that's what will grow. In the very direct kind of antidote to the tendency that we may have grown up with or learned or had interjected or taken on for whatever reason that's led us to hold experience harshly or fearfully or suspiciously or manipulatively or in any other of the ways that create a kind of you know, unnecessary and unhelpful friction with experience. So one can sit here, you know, with a kind of pushy attitude, trying to get somewhere called peace. Come on! <laughs> you know. Or one can sit here as an expression of kindness, tending to what's here, making room for what's here, allowing what's here, loving what's here. And same for those sitting on the bridge or in the road this evening. It's one of the things that's been very inspiring and clearly articulated and very well expressed within the whole movement of Extinction Rebellion is the absolute emphasis on non-violence, on holding the whole thing no, lovingly. And maybe some of you were there in April in the first week of rebellion. No. I was teaching in London all that week and going along in the evenings and our daughter was quite involved in the Oxford Circus uh, part. And very touching to see, you know, I saw the police arresting people and the police themselves were crying as they were carrying people away crying because the people as people were getting arrested and carried away the others sitting around were singing we love you we're doing this for your children too and the protest has a has can have a feel of aggression or a feel of resistance or a feel of uh, you know ag- anger hatred I remember, actually I won't go into all that, Um, but you know, that sense of when one's sitting on the mat or sitting on the bridge, you know, one can be sitting there emphasizing a sense of opposition, of difference, of resentment, or one can be sitting there emphasizing a sense of connection, solidarity. Mm, Some are wearing uniforms, some are wearing tie-dye. Right. S- deeper we look, the more we find the same basic human concerns. So, that sense of, you know, 
the way we... It's a nice idea, right? Be kind. Be kind to everyone. If it were that simple, I could just tell you that and then let's go home. Let's just go off and be kind to everyone. Sometimes that happens in retreat, right? There's actually a movement of a lot of love that opens up, a lot of kindness, a lot of care, and then a sense of, well, what am I doing wasting my time here then? Let me, you know, maybe you're feeling that now, let me run off to the bridge, you know, do my bit. And there's a kind of impatience to go off somewhere to put into practice the insight that I've had or the, the, the kind of movement of the, of the heart that I've had. And, you know, please, by all means, put the movements of heart, put the insights, put the growth, put the openings into practice in all kinds of ways. And in a way, though, also, the best preparation for being able to put the, the, the love in your heart into practice in another situation is to put it into practice in this moment. And so when there's some impatience, when there's some uh, idea of, oh, I could be there, or I'd like to be doing that, well, maybe it's that movement that actually, in the, you know, when it happens, that needs the caretaking needs the kindness, holding impatience kindly. The more you can hold the movements and the impulses and the ideas of this moment kindly, the more you're cultivating that capacity to hold the challenges and the uh, vicissitudes and the conflicts and the difficulties of another moment kindly. So, what good news that we can train kindness, deepen kindness, grow our kindness, expand our kindness. And kindness is, Buddha talks about these few particular qualities of heart that are boundless. No limit to how much they can grow, no limit to the way the heart can expand. And kindness is one of the the imponderables, they're called the immeasurables, the boundless qualities of heart. But please don't take my word for it. Mm. Use your practice to grow your heart. And then empathy another area in their research and, and they've seen as being so important as an agent or a component of connection. There's a, there's a sort of strange new movement. Maybe you've been exposed to it. I hope for your sake not, but maybe. There's a kind of... Uh, it's, it seems to be partly a generational thing and maybe it's happening in one or two or three layers of generation below <laughs> some of us. But this kind of thing to sort of rather clumsily divide people up into narcissists and empaths. Have you come across some of that? Yes, yes. It's an easy way to make a villain out of the other. So one casts oneself or the 
sort of self-identifies in some kind of group way as empathic and the others as somehow insensitive or narcissistic, etc. It's a kind of, it's a, yeah, it's a rather clumsy way of understanding empathy and it's also a rather um, dismissive way of treating other people. And yet there is this capacity, right, of empathy. There is this capacity to have a real sense of solidarity with what somebody else is going through. To have a real sense of being touched by another's pain or distress or, or joy. And to have a real capacity to actually r- recognize and feel that uh, state that the other is in, in our own nervous system. Well, this isn't a particularly uh, subtle thing. You'll see it if you, if you see somebody, you know, if you see somebody behaving aggressively, if you see somebody smack their child in the supermarket, you feel it. You feel it physically. You feel the, the kind of the, the pain of aggression, although you feel the pain of that of somebody lashing out in some way, or being angry, being aggressive, being uh, destructive in some way, right? and it's painful. It's painful to feel pain. That's not a wrong thing. That's a very important thing. It has to be painful to feel pain. But uh, the tendencies, the usual learned habit that we have, because it's painful to feel pain, we usually have one or other of a learned habit. One is to kind of shut down as a way to not feel. And the other is to get kind of embroiled in, lost in, um, the kind of a kind of emotive or dramatic uh, uh, sense of the pain that one's struck by. So how might one actually train empathy? Mm. Firstly, with some recognition of our usual pattern, Mm. some recognition of our tendency to turn away or our tendency to get uh, embroiled in. (coughs) And partly that depends on how we listen. You can see that and how one listens to a friend in distress or to how one responds to somebody who might be in distress, you know, in a, in a public setting that we come across. You know. mm. And just to notice the, either the tendency to somehow subtly or not so subtly withdraw, remove oneself, shut down, not feel, etc., Right. So there's a, in that sense, there's a sort of energetic pulling back. Right. Or the other sense, an energetic kind of leaning into. And we want to care, and we want to help, maybe, and we want to listen, and we want to be of support, and we somehow feel that in order to connect, in order to, we th- have to sort of lean out into the other person. And in leaning out, we get kind of caught up in the drama and the detail and the kind of emotional material of all of that.
night before we came to Gaia House, Gail and I were driving, we stopped on the way in Dorset to stay, spend the night with my parents. And just 10 minutes before we arrived at my parents' house, a car in front of us hit a young deer and hit the deer very badly. And I, w I won't describe it, but the deer was in, you know, in a lot of pain and distress and was dying in some way. And both of those responses were on show. You know, the person who'd hit the deer was, it was very distressing, understandably. Right? And yet there's, there's a distress which is just, oh, feeling for the certain, there's a certain tragedy, a certain poignancy, a certain painfulness to pain. And yet, there can also be the leaning on beyond that to, oh, what is it, as if it, to doing a lot of meaning making about it. Why did it happen? And what's it, did, and what about me? And oh, if only, and da, da, da. And then there was a van who pulled up behind with some builders in it and saw the deer in great distress. And one said, I've got a shovel in the back. And in some ways, it may have been the kind thing to kind of you know, to end the what was obviously the terminal distress of the deer and yet uh, one could also feel within the kind of suggestion of the shovel a certain <coughs> withdrawal of the heart and then somebody came I was with the deer at the side of the road just kind of trying to provide some sort of reassuring presence partly to stop it trying it, it wouldn't have been able to but trying to spring up as it recovered from the shock and partly just to kind of to provide some reassuring presence which somehow really seemed to be able to respond to and then somebody stopped who really knew what to do in those cases they knew who to call the vet and the adju and what was it? somebody who who deals with that kind of situation, etc. But we see those kind of movements, the the want, the wish, or the need, or the just the compulsion to withdraw the heart, or the tendency to get embroiled in the in the drama. And you might know for yourself one or other tendency, mm. subtle or more or stronger. And get to know that tendency and get to know what happens through the leaning back and the way we actually deprive ourselves of our own heart as well as depriving the other of access to our heart. And get to know what happens with that leaning in where we get sort of <coughs> embroiled in and carried away by and lost in the drama of what's happening or the distress of what's happening. And then we also actually deprive ourselves of just access to empathy. And we deprive the other of, of actually being available as a receptive, loving presence. And then we can also train that capacity uh, to neither withdraw, leaning back, nor lose ourselves in leaning forward but to actually just sit in the heart's availability. Available to this situation, available to this moment of distress, available to this sadness or grief 
or loss or whatever it might be. And both really available. Right? That openness, spaciousness of awareness that has room for what arises. And when you sit in that available way, there's room for it to be felt and there's room for it to subside. And sometimes there's the fear that if I let myself feel what's happening, somehow it'll, it'll, you know, it'll just become, uh, it'll get stuck. Sometimes people have that feeling. They say, oh, I'm, I absorb other people's energy in some way. But we tend to absorb other people's energy in that kind of leaning forward way. Cultivating empathy is means we're actually able to feel it come and go. And some of you, I know, do this for a living. You know, some of you sit with others in the psychotherapeutic context or similar, or in social work. And it becomes very important, actually, to develop that capacity to, to, to kind of be transparent to the stuff of the heart. And if it's hard to be transparent, if it's hard at the end of being witness to and empathic with somebody's distress or pain, sometimes it can be helpful to do something a little, uh, um, to have a sort of transitional ritual. You might take a shower, you might just go for a walk, you might take a few deep breaths. But something to consciously mark the kind of having been available to the actual putting down. And as we get more skillful with that, we find we don't need to put it down. And the heart has room just to allow it in and let it move through. And the more we can train that quality of empathy, the more we're actually available to listen, to respond to care and increasingly to somehow to know what to do, to know what to say, to know when we can do something concrete and be able to do it and to know when sometimes we can't do anything concrete and still to feel it. So that capacity to train in empathy, deepen our empathy, quality that's more often referred to as compassion in the Buddhist tradition. And then also the, the capacity for joy. And that, that part of connection, <coughs> joy is connective. And you know, again, it may be that there are moments in a retreat setting like this, moments of deep joy, deep appreciation, deep gladness to be here. But the kind of deep joy that we might really taste in meditation, it's not so visible. Right? There's a kind of cooled out vibe here. So we kind of deep joy looks like this. Sometimes people will say to me, I feel like dancing. I want to dance. And the guy says, go, 
Go and dance around the garden. But generally, it's a kind of not. It doesn't necessarily feel low key, the joy, but it can look low key, and so one can somehow get the impression that there's either there isn't much joy on retreat, that there's a joyless lot of retreatants sitting here like this, or can have the the, the sense we can have that there's sort of the joy is not really allowed. Right? That we're not here to enjoy ourselves. But actually, the opposite is really true. We have to learn to enjoy this practice. Otherwise, you won't be able to sustain it. That's a big part of how people don't manage to sustain their practice when they leave, because they turn it into a chore. You've got enough chores in life. Don't add meditation to your daily list of chores. To-do list. You know, clean the bathroom, put out the rubbish, meditate. <laughs> oh yeah, I've got to do it. Oh yeah, still another five minutes. You know? When it feels like that, when it starts to feel like that, and of course there may be stages where there's a certain sense of one's just kind of, you know, might feel like one's going through the motions sometime. But you can't go through the motions for very long. And so, actually, just considering this, oh, the training in joy within meditation practice, right? To sit down as if, oh, you sit down as if you're kind of sinking into a long, into a candlelit bath at the end of a long day, you know? Oh. To sit down as a gift to yourself. To sit down as a moment where you don't have to do anything. You don't have to do meditation. Doing meditation doesn't work anyway. There's an opportunity to rest. Rest into presence that's already here. Awareness that's already here. Experience that's already here. And I'd really invite you, we'll speak more at the end of the retreat about kind of integration and all, but I'd really invite you to just see what difference might it make to just have the whisper at least of that intention sitting down with a certain kind of gladness, gratitude, appreciation. And then to see what else, what is there that supports joy, you know. It's one of the things, you know, I notice in meditation groups as well. Sometimes we get invited to go to a a group and the poor group are basing their their sangha life on retreat practice. So they get together, these people who have this lovely thing in common that they love depth and they love dharma and they love practice. They get together and they meditate and they listen to a talk. They maybe drink uh, herbal tea really push the boat out, and then they go home. And okay, that's okay, right? But if you, if Sangha needs to be more of a resource than that. It needs to be a resource for joy, for mutual support. Ironically, actually, monasteries are a good place to go to see that at work. People think you go to a monastery, you're just going to see a lot of sour-faced monastics, you know, meditating. Go to one of the monasteries here in England. You go to Amaravati, 
in the centre of the Thai forest tradition in this country. And you've got a big monastery near Hemel Hempstead, uh, north of London. You can go there on a Sunday, you'll see a lot of families there, picnics, frisbee, kids playing cricket. You know, because the monastery is a place for people to gather, it's a place for people to connect, a place for people to you know, enjoy. A lot of celebrations, you know, rituals of appreciating, whether that's the moments of the year or the marks of the Buddhist calendar or whatever. You need, you know, sanghas that express joy, joy of meditation, joy of feeling like one's actually doing what one most cares about. Joy of uh, being with others in a way that nourishes us. And finding what those ways are. And the sense of the way that, it, that training ourselves in joy, orientating towards joy. And particularly when things are difficult. Like we were saying about physical pain, it's good to hang out there with physical discomfort. But at some point, when you don't have the resources, it's not helpful anymore. It's good to actually redirect your attention to something that gives more ease. And similarly, sometimes it's important to orientate your attention to a source of joy. Sometimes at the Mulan at home, when people are just having a hard time on retreat and they're kind of caught in a loop of the stodginess of their practice, the heaviness of their practice, the chore of their practice. And I try to find ways to support them in connecting to a source of joy. Go and sit by the river. Go and hang out with the fish. Go and do some drawing. Listen to some music. Do something, and not as a distraction, but as a way of orientating the attention to something which delights, which, which pleases, which connects one to a sense of beauty, gladness, wonder, gratitude. There's a lot to enjoy here. Enjoy the weather. Enjoy the clouds moving across the sky. Enjoy all the care that goes into the gardens here. Enjoy the food. Enjoy being able to walk on the earth. Maybe there's a lot of ways we could be training joy, cultivating joy, nourishing joy while we're here. But the self-absorption habit easily gets hold of us. And then anything and pretty much everything can become a chore. And so we either go one way, into the chore of meditation, and the chore, or we go the other way, the kind of excitement, the kind of greedy attempt, the poor substitute for joy, looking, what can I, what can I you know, get some pleasure from? And we fixate on the lunch, or we fixate on some fantasy, oh, that would be great, oh, that would be great. Some sexual fantasy, some holiday fantasy, some anything but this moment now fantasy. The idea that our, our fulfilment is somehow in some other moment, some other situation, some other place where we've put the juice. And so another way to cultivate what might be a source of joy here and now? And to let the heart kind of drink for, of that appreciation.
And of course, you can fill in your own gaps. Right? What might be ways that you can cultivate joy, a buoyant heart, a grateful heart, a glad heart, a generous heart? Because that's very much a way to establish connection, right? Somebody's actually joyful. No, and I don't mean excited. Right? I mean, you're allowed to be excited as well. But often what we confuse for joy is a kind of overstimulated kind of, um, you know, thing. Now, that's our kind of cultural reference point for joy, is people being kind of, you know, gushy and flooded with endorphins. Right? But if you actually come across somebody who's exuding a kind of contented joy, quiet joy, a fullness of joy, a lightness of touch, a playfulness that might express itself in their gestures or their eyes or their words or the sense you have that they don't take themselves too seriously. That quality of joy it communicates itself. It somehow invites uh, us. We come into the orbit of real joy, fluid, bubbling, uh, um, natural joy. It's like it invites us when we come into the orbit of that to relax, to not take ourselves so seriously. Invites us to also drink from that kind of stream, playful stream, light-hearted stream, generous stream, glad-hearted stream. So, there's some recipes for your practice. Cultivating kindness, cultivating empathy, cultivating joy. So that we might be agents of deep connection, instruments of deep connection, supports for deep connection. The deep connection to ourselves and to each other and to all these beings that we live in solidarity with all over the earth and maybe beyond. So may our practice be in the support of deep connection. May the deep connection of our hearts be dedicated to the longing for connection in every heart. May deep connection nourish the freedom and the well-being and the fearlessness of ourselves and each other and all those we love and all those we have contact with and all those around the world that are on streets and bridges and roads tonight and all beings everywhere. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.